We're going to read tonight about the Church of Pergamum. If you have your Bibles with you or if you're watching online, then please turn to Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. I'm just going to read through the message to this particular church. Starting in verse 12. To the angel of the Church of Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith to me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those to hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. As a basic breakup of the letters, and I'll repeat it every week just so that we're aware, they all follow this certain literary structure that's of importance. The first thing is, to whom is the letter written to? What church are we talking about? Just for your understanding, because it dawned on me, as people are kind of asking questions, not only you guys, but people that watch online, uh, oftentimes um, in churches, the churches of Revelations have been taught very mythically. They've also been taught more allegorically, like each church is a representation of an era of church history. No, these were real, legitimate churches, just like we have a church here in Bristol. Just like there might be an Assemblies of God church in Rhode Island, like my home church was North Providence Assembly of God. Like, great. They are legitimate places and people that Jesus is speaking to. And so I want you to understand that. And that is why I give you the historical uh, contextual approach, because these were real deal places that they are speaking to. And what they are saying has true legitimacy for the people that are hearing it. Now, what relevance does it have to you and I? Well, we are learning from them. We are learning from history because that's what the whole Bible is. We are learning from the stories of others, and these are not fable stories. They are real stories of real people living out a relationship with a very real God. So tonight, please keep that in mind. The second thing is we see how Jesus is depicted. The third thing, we hear the I know. So some praises are offered on behalf of the church. The other phrase we hear for most of the churches except for two is, but I have this against you. That is the dun-dun-dun. The words that repeat in all of them, to him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying. We always reflect on that. What is the Spirit of God saying through this text to us? And the last one is the eschatological promise, and that is the promise of the future that Jesus has for those who believe in him. So let's start tonight with the church of Pergamum. Pergamum, obviously, was known throughout the Roman Empire. In its history, Pergamum was also its own empire. 
It was a very strategic place. It was a very powerful place. And before it could collapse, it decided that it would merge itself with the Roman Empire. Reason being is, is because Pergamum wanted to have trading rights along the Mediterranean. Because Pergamum had made that strategic decision to become part of the Roman Empire, it also became known eventually for its wealth and its beauty. It also had a geographical position along a fertile valley on the Caius River. And so because of that, you have to see this kind of budding metropolis, you know, in Turkey, along the banks of the Mediterranean with this river flowing through it. This place is lush. It is absolutely gorgeous. The buildings are made from a grayish kind of stone, so it's super modern and hip. And uh, because of that, the people place great stock in the, you know, kind of the pompousness of their reputation. So they also bolstered a library that had 2,000 volumes in it. This was the second largest library of the ancient world compared to that which was in Alexandria, Egypt. So again, in the ancient world, when you have anywhere that you are, even if you have a local library with 200,000 books, you're like, you're doing good. You know, that is a good sign. So this place is definitely the place to be. The other thing that made Pergamum so unique was the fact that it had a deity for everything under the sun. If you grew up in the 80s or 90s, or you had kids in the 80s and the 90s, then you are fully aware of the zip code 90210. Yeah, Beverly Hills. If I say the name Rodeo Drive, does that ring a bell to some of you? Or if you go to New York, like Park Avenue, yeah, Madison Avenue, all of those names kind of ring a bell. And we picture stores or Broadway plays, or you can pretty much, if you were to go to a place like Hollywood, you can see where all of the actors live up in the hills, and they'll take you on a little bus tour from one famous person to the next, to the next, to the next. Well, in this particular place in Pergamum, it had that same kind of feeling, like this was the place to be. This was the zip code. But the reason that it was the place to be is they had a temple for every god imaginable. Every deity that you could think of in the ancient Roman world, they were honoring them. They had a temple built. They offered sacrifices. They had parties. They had festivities. I don't even know if these people actually worked because they were celebrating these gods almost every day of the week. And these were parties in the sense of the parties that you and I, we are not allowed to go to. Yeah, everything that God has forbidden happened in these particular parties. And so they were all over the place, and the gods promised them all of their desires. Whatever you want, whatever you need. You need love, we're going to give you love. You need healing, we're going to give you healing. Oh, you need finances, we're going to give you finances. Oh, you need a better life, you want to be stronger, we're going to give you all of that. So this was like, forget it, these people were getting all hyped up. Some of the famous gods that were represented were Demeter, Dionysius, Athena, and Orpheus. However, the one central god of Roman mythology, Zeus, was also honored. And he was referred to there as the king of kings. Zeus was the go-to god for everything, and they referred to him as Zeus the savior. Well, John obviously was not having that. Just to give you a little bit of a reflection of these particular gods, there was the temple of Dionysius. Dionysius, he 
was, of course, uh, you know, his temple was really big into these crazy parties where the wine started flowing and it did not stop. These people were beyond drunk. They were drunk to the point of almost being comatose. They offered human sacrifices when things really started getting out of hand. And they were also known to participate in the most vile of sexual orgies imaginable. Like they make sexuality in our time look mild. That's how bad they were. Another thing that was there was the temple of, I have to pronounce it correctly, Asclepius. There we go. Asclepius. And he was known for his temple of serpents. This was the place for healing. Recently, I posted a picture on my own social media of a little gardener snake in our front yard, and everyone's like, ooh, gross, disgusting, burn it. They're like the most mild form of snake you can imagine. However, this particular temple was world-renowned in that time, that people would specifically come to that town believing that they were going to get healed by the power of the serpents. And I mean, it was crazy what people would do. They would lie in a room like this that was pitch black, body next to body, and serpents would be released over the room to crawl on them. And that's where they believed that their healing would come from. So it was quite a crazy kind of place to be in. Now again, the serpent is embodied in this particular story, and later we will read in Revelation that Satan is also referred to as the great serpent. So there's a lot of similarities that are being drawn off of here. We know also that there was a temple to Trajan, um, and this was quite the temple. And this actual temple of Trajan, and there, there's all different, you know, archaeologically, they're not sure, like which temple sometimes actually belonged to whom. But this is what they refer to as Satan's throne. And this particular temple, if you have your pamphlet with you, you can look at it. That marble structure that you see on the inside, that whole thing was kind of picked up and moved from Turkey to a museum in Berlin. So this whole marble structure, which was a throne to Trajan and a place of uh, just worship to false gods, was archaeologically uncovered. And this is the place that they're referring to as the actual throne of Satan. So I don't know about you, but I don't know if I would want that in my particular city. So uh, in Berlin, that's where it's in the museum. This particular city was challenging to believers. It was challenging to them, especially for Jewish believers. And you have to picture that. A lot of Jewish believers came to faith after the day of Pentecost. So they were in Israel for certain feasts. And we read the story of Acts, but people were touched from every nation. So a lot of Jews lived in these particular trade route countries because, mind you, they had an edge on the market. Number one, because they could speak Koine Greek, but they could also speak Hebrew to other Jews if necessary. So it allowed them these advantage of at these trading cities. So these Jews and these early Christians that lived in the city were constantly faced with a moral dilemma. In order to enter the city of Pergamum, at the very gates of the city, they had to offer worship to the emperor and burn incense. Some of the other cities that I mentioned, you solely had to do that to get into the marketplace or a temple. But in the city of Pergamum, if you were going out, there was no way of getting back in unless you worshiped the emperor or one of the false gods. 
So because of that, these early Christians, because of their lack of homage to the emperor, were actually seen as atheists. We call atheists people who do not believe in God, but the Romans called atheists people who did not believe in their gods. So that was quite the mark that these early Christians had upon them. And so because of that, their daily existence was threatened. Their comfort, their personal peace, their finances, their positions within society, and their relationship with their friends and family and even the people that they worked with, their very lives were at risk. As we start to read through these cities, we're going to see more and more the challenges, whether we feel that they are positive or negative, that these believers are faced with. Now here in this particular part, verse 1, chapter, uh, verses 13 through 18, we see this picture of Jesus. And he refers to himself as the one that has a sharp, double-edged sword in his mouth. And so in this particular one, like Jesus is really saying he means business. This is not a weak-willed picture. This is not a soft image of Jesus. And I need you to hold that particular image. I need you to hold this image of Jesus being powerful yet authoritative because we're going to need it for this particular church. And we're also going to compare that to another way that Jesus reveals himself in this particular book, which seems to be the counter opposite of this, but he does it for a reason. So Jesus reveals himself in this particular book as the one with the sharp double-edged sword in his mouth. Now, what's the reason for that? Now, we say, again, historically, these cities, they had a lot of meaning that went into them. So the Roman governor of that particular region of Pergamum had what they referred to as the right to the sword, meaning this was the place of capital punishment in the Roman Empire, meaning they had the right to end your life. They had the right to determine who lived and who died. And so that was kind of titled under this lovely expression, they had the right of eus gladii. So they had the right to off with your head. And they officially gained the nickname, the Sword of Rome. So Jesus is speaking as the one who has the double-edged sword as he speaks and his words come out of his mouth to the place who carries the authority of the sword in the Roman Empire. And what Jesus is trying to reveal to this particular church, and he's doing it for a reason, and we'll kind of unveil that a little bit in the next portion, is that Jesus is showing this church, it is not the city that you live in, and it is not the governor that lords over you that has the right to life and death. But life and death are in my hands. I have the right to determine who lives, and I have the power over death. And so this passage is, emphasizing this nature of Jesus that really is all-powerful. So if these people and believers are thinking that human beings lord or make the decisions over their destiny, they are greatly mistaken because it's Jesus who determines that. Another thing that Jesus makes clear about this sword that is coming out of his mouth is he is ready to fight and make war against the false teachers that are infiltrating the church of Pergamum. And so because of it, Jesus tells them, I will come to you and I will make war, not against you, he says to the church, but against them, meaning the ones who are practicing the teaching of uh, sexual immorality and meat sacrificed to idols. 
and also those that are kind of compliant with the teachings of the Nicolaitans, which are very mysterious and weird teachings, and there's no real historical grapple on what they actually believed in. The Nicolaitans are kind of seen as believers who kind of made themselves so worldly that you couldn't see Christ in them anymore. And so Jesus wanted to depict himself as very strong. Jesus loves his church, and Jesus believes in his church, and he loves and believes in his church so much that he is willing to do battle on their behalf. Verse 3, or verse 3, part 3, the I knows. He praises this church in particular. He praises them for holding on. Let's look at verse 13. He says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. So he's referring to all of the seats and temples of all of the goddesses. He says to the church, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city. And then he repeats the words again, where Satan lives. He's doing this for a reason. The words Satan and Satan are appearing around the name Antipas two times for a reason. But Antipas is given a special honor. Antipas, the martyr, is called a faithful witness. These words are only ascribed to Jesus in the New Testament, but here is a man who is dying for his faith in Christ, and he is given that very same title of honor. This man, Antipas, is a real man. He was a bishop of the city of Pergamum, and like I said, he was martyred for his faith, meaning he gave his life in an, uh, 92 AD. He was burned. He was burned in a horrible way, and I'm going to explain that a little bit to explain another parallel here. So this particular man, Antipas, he was brought to one of the temples, and at the temple they had this altar that was in the shape of a brazen bull, so a bronze bull, and there they would put people on it that seemed possessed, and they would try to cast demons out of them. But inside that particular bull, and you can see a little picture of it inside your pamphlet again, they had this kind of cauldron where they could light someone on fire inside the bull. Now, we know with metal that when you are heating up metal, not only is it the fire, but the metal itself and just the asphyxiation that you're going through, just unbearable. So Antipas dies this very horrible death as the bishop who is leading the church in Pergamum. So he offers his life in this little fiery furnace. And I want to draw a parallel here that I think is very important. See, John, when he's writing this book, and these books are referred to in a certain genre, and a genre is like a way of writing, a style, just like we have movies that are romantic comedies or horror movies or even books that are like that. Well, in the ancient world, their books were narrative books or they were apocryphal books or they were historical books. So this particular book, Revelation, along with Daniel, are called apocryphal books. And there's a whole explanation I can do on that. I am going to spare you tonight. I'll show you at another moment what that's all about because it will bore you a little bit. But it is important to know. And the author, John, as he is led under the power of the Holy Spirit, he is relating a lot of the book of Revelation, which I said is an apocryphal book, to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, which is also an apocryphal book. So in the book of Daniel, we read about three men who do not compromise, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. They, for their faith, are thrown into a fiery furnace. However, 
they see Jesus in the furnace, the pre-existent Christ, in the furnace with them. And when they go to open up the furnace, that fourth man is not there in the furnace, and the men emerge from the fire. They don't smell like smoke. Their clothes are not burned. Their hair is not singed. The only thing that is burnt off of them are the ropes that shackled them. And so God delivers them. And so when you read the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, it says, and by faith, God did this and God did that. So God delivered by faith Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. Now what I love are the words of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego because they had said before they were thrown into the fire, even if our God does not save us, we will still follow him. Even if he doesn't save us. And this particular story in Revelation, for the believers in Pergamum, they saw their faithful leader, a man who was a man of faith, walk in faith to that little mini fiery furnace. They did not see a visible form of Jesus in that furnace, but oh, believe me, Jesus was there with Antipas in that fire. But Antipas didn't survive that fire. See, by faith, he wasn't delivered from the fire. But the book of Hebrews also shows us that by faith, men and women of God through the ages offered their lives even unto death. And so Antipas, by faith, offered his life as a true testament of someone who loved and believed and followed Jesus no matter what. And the book of Revelation later picks up on this. It says, and they overcame him, meaning the devil. It says, by the word of their testimony and by the blood of the Lamb, for they loved not their life even unto death. See, Antipas was an example for this community of standing up in the midst of difficulty. But mind you, picture being a believer during that time where your faithful leader you see die in the most abominable way. And when you know the stories of the Bible and you're thinking, oh good, he believes in Jesus, God is going to deliver him. But see, a true theology of faith goes two ways. See, we need to have faith to believe that God can deliver people from the fire, but we also have to have faith to believe that sometimes God sends you into the fire and lets you burn there. Why? Because both things glorify him. Both things bring him honor. And so the book of Hebrews, as well as Revelation, are kind of encouraging Christians, stand up and stand strong for Jesus no matter what. This verse is repeated, you know, it says, they have held on. They are admonished for holding on. And it says they have held fast to his name. So these people that are living in this kind of buffet of deities where they can run to any temple they want and kind of get their dream come true, allegedly. It's not really real. Jesus says to them almost, I am your everything. If you want healing, I'm your healer. If you want wisdom, I'm the source of wisdom. If you want a savior, I'm your savior. If you want abundance, I'm the God who is more than enough for you. So hold on to me, Jesus says. But also in this very same passage, it is referred to as the place of the sword. So just like these mighty warriors and soldiers hold on to the sword, orchestrating life and death to people, Jesus is saying to them, O mighty soldiers of the gospel, hold on. Hold on to the sword of the word of God. No matter what you go through, let my truth be the truth that stands above all things. 
Now, I mentioned before that the word Satan kind of hem the beginning and the end of the story of Antipas in. Well, there's a reason for that. So you see, Satan, he tries to undermine loyalty to Christ by persecution. He uses it as a fear tactic. However, Christ strengthens this loyalty by commanding those who are sure to him and by exposing those who are deceitful. See, persecution is a way for Jesus to separate the men from the boys or the ladies from the girls. Persecution shows us who the real believers are. See, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. But see, when the going gets tough for real Christians, their faith should only get stronger. And so Jesus is admonishing these believers, hold on. Even though that slippery serpent is trying to push you to the point of death and turn all kinds of people against you, understand that it is my will and purpose that my name be glorified through your life. Again, these are not easy lessons. These are ouchy lessons. However, despite the fact that these believers were willing to offer their lives completely and that they were also experiencing social isolation from not being able to participate in community, he says to them, but I have this against you. Verse 14, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Verse 15. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, and then the admonishment to them or the correction is, repent, repent of these things, otherwise I will soon come to you, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus was speaking against the false teaching that was creeping into this church that even though they were persecuted, they were facing the danger of becoming very worldly. How long were they going to hold on for? How long were they going to be true? And some people even thought that their sufferings validated the false teachings that they started to believe in. They thought they had a right. I know this might seem strange to some of you, but I have some friends from Bible school that grew up in the former Soviet Union. Some of their pa parents were pastors and church leaders. Some of them were baptized in the winter outside in an icy lake where they had to, with a saw, like saw out part of the ice and baptize them in the middle of the winter so no one would see it. They would meet in underground churches. They would smuggle Bibles. A good friend of mine from Bible school, his father was one of the main leaders. He spent several years in prison in solitary confinement. His best friend was a little mouse picture that. And some of these people, when the Iron Curtain fell and when communism had lifted, they heard the gospel being preached to them. But also the influences of Western society crept in, and Christians who were once willing to offer their lives completely for Christ began to trade Jesus in for worldly pleasures and worldly things. Jesus started taking a second, a third, and a fourth, fifth, fifth, sixth, or some of them walked away from him completely. See, persecution does not give you a badge. Suffering is not a right in and of itself. Standing strong for Christ no matter what. See, you don't get like tokens. 
for your suffering. We think that, like you've earned the badge, like I have the right, you know? It's like older people sometimes, like I'll hear people say to me, when I'm 70, 80 years old, I have the right to walk across the street even though it's not a pedestrian crossing. Or I have the right to disobey the rules because I've obeyed them my whole life. No, really, you don't. That's not the way that it works. And the same holds true for us as believers, no matter how many badges we have earned for standing up for Christ repeatedly, it never gives us an excuse, even toward the end of our life, to just let it go. The book of Hebrews also shows us that. It says it's not how you begin, but it's how you end the race that is the most important. Like I said, some people wanted to compromise and escape the social pressures that were around him. If you don't want to be excluded, then you were able to kind of be sneaky and sneak into temples and worship with others. And believe me, it happened. And mind you, like I said, I've grown up as a believer and even going to church, I knew about people even before the days of social media, of people from church that were praising the Lord but sleeping around with other people. People that were, you know, shaking, quote unquote, under the power of the Lord and then they were using drugs right after the service. So to me, I'm not phased by the outward appearance. My thing is, do you live for Christ in the shadows? Do you live for Christ in the moments where no one sees what you're doing? And we live in a culture of anonymity. In the ancient world, they had to go to temples and markets to go get their things. We live in a world where we can order sin in the privacy of our own home. It can be delivered in a package. It can come to us through the means of a screen. These people, they snuck into temples. The world you and I live in, we don't even have to sneak. That's how dangerous it gets. Just in case you didn't think there was any relevance of this church to the world we live in. The first thing that they were compromising in, like I said, was sexual immorality. There are many theologians that wrestle with this text, and they say, well, they were being spiritually unfaithful. Oh, no, no, they were really believers doing raunchy things. There were believers that were going out to these parties and doing the things that they should not do. And people say, oh, could Christians actually do that? Oh, yes, they can. Beware. You know, it's just like in the Old Testament, the quote that I started with. Even Lot, he started by pitching his tents outside of the city of Sodom. But when you read the text a little further, all of a sudden he is living in a house in the city of Sodom. It doesn't take long for compromise to set in. But the sexual perversion, like I said, that they were experiencing was not the -the run-of-the-mill sexual perversion. These sexual escapades were linked to the worship of gods and goddesses. It was an act of worship and allegiance. And there were actually Christians that were participating in it. This wasn't just, I slept with someone, and mind you, I don't condone that. But what I'm saying is these people took it to a whole nother level. It wasn't just sex. It wasn't just quote-unquote casual sex, which I don't believe in casual sex. But this sex was associated with the worship of a god or goddess. These people were just opening themselves up completely to demonic infiltration. That is why believers are told in another book of the Bible about sexual sin, don't you realize your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? There's a reason they were saying that, because some of these believers were sneaking into temples for sex, and they were exposing themselves to the forces of darkness, And then they walked around after that saying, I don't know, I am possessed. 
Believe me, even as ministers, we come across that sometimes. People, oh, I don't know why the devil's so active in my life. I don't know why I'm manifesting. I don't know why this. It's like, I know Jesus. You know Jesus, but what are you doing on the side? People are dabbling in other things. Another thing these believers were dabbling in was meat sacrificed to idols. This was not your regular grocery store. This was also not the marketplace of that time. In the marketplace of these days, there was meat sacrificed to idols as well, but sometimes you really didn't know the difference between them because it wasn't like a little label was on it. So Christians, if they didn't know if it was or wasn't, it was just a matter of conscience. But if they knew that it was meat sacrificed to idols, they were not allowed to eat it. Yet we have Christians that take their little basket while they're out with their friends, and because they want to be popular as they're doing their grocery shopping, they happen to stumble into a temple that sells meat, and they buy this meat that is sacrificed to idols, and they serve it up to their family in the evenings. Well, what is that reminiscent of? Well, we live in a world that likes to dabble in things like New Age and occultic practices, where people like to mix Christianity with other things to go along with the status quo. Mind you, I personally, I think all kinds of exercise are wonderful and beautiful, but the second those exercises start associating themselves with gods or energies or anything that's kind of weird and New Age, mind you, I'm the first person that's going to be running out the door. I remember one time as a high school student, I was part of the theater group, and mind you, the world of theater is a strange world in and of itself. Right before the theater production, we were asked by our teacher to all join hands and let our energies flow. Now, mind you, before the teacher said those words, I had joined hands with everyone because I just thought we were starting this thing up with like a powwow. So I thought we're going to like say like, you know, go, the name of the school was classical, like go classical. So I was like, yay, great. And there we are standing in the circle and the teacher says, and as we're holding hands, we're just going to take a moment and let everyone's energies flow into one another. And I took the two people's hands that were next to me, I connected them together, and I walked out of the circle. (laughs) I wasn't going for that. And not because I'm afraid of that energy, because literally I started praying in the spirit. And I'm like, Lord, really, let your Holy Ghost begin to touch them. So I wasn't afraid of those things, but I thought, I do need to take a stand. Because if I don't take a stand in these moments, I am going to fall in other ones. Those moments, like I said, they led to things like social isolation. People didn't get me. They didn't understand me. They said all the time, are you from another country? Like, you talk differently than we do. You don't use the same words that we use. You don't go about things the way that we go about them. Where are you from? They would say to me all the time, are you from Greece? Are you from Israel? I said, no, I'm American. Like, I'm from here. But they just couldn't understand the life that I was living and the choices I would make. And I didn't go to these high schools that were, like, selective of people. I was sharing with some of the people before we even started. They were not respecters of people. We were all this one big group together, especially as a senior class. And I remember at one point they kind of had this senior, like, party that was on the side. And that senior party was getting drunk on the rooftop of the school. And so in the speech of our valedictorian, she referenced that party. However, there was one person that did not attend. That person was moi. The only person that wasn't there. You have to understand, those were quite strong statements to be made. It didn't always put me on the inside. They weren't mean, but they just didn't get me. That led to many moments of being alone. 
And that's what was happening to the believers of this time. If you didn't want to go to the temple and participate in the feast, what was your social outing? You had nowhere to go. You were just stuck in your house. You would go to the markets, but when your girlfriends or your guy friends would say, hey, want to get a nice piece of meat? I know this temple that has really good stuff. When they were about to walk in, that meant that you had to walk in the other direction. Would you be willing to do that? They were constantly being faced with these kinds of choices. See, these believers had to understand that their daily decisions would prove whether they were accepting Christ or rejecting him just based off of the meat that they bought and the parties that they attended to. The story that's referred to in this particular portion of the Bible is the story of Balaam. And Balaam was a false prophet who tried to mislead Balak and then the people of Israel. He tried to mislead them, the Bible says, by telling them that if you get the people of Israel to serve other gods, then they are going to fall into sin and come into punishment. So if you really want to curse them, get them to do what is wrong. And so eventually 24,000 Israelites were murdered because of compromise and idolatry. This is found in the book of Numbers, chapter 22 to 24. And this was a lesson. This was a lesson not only to the Jews, but to these early believers. Are you going to go with the status quo if that status quo is going against the principles of God's word? Are you, are, are you going to be that fish that swims in the other direction? Even in this particular story, we realize that even as believers, even as churches, we are called to go against the status quo, even of the churches that surround us. See, many churches, they don't preach about sin anymore. Many churches don't call people to repentance to say, turn away from your sinful lives. Many churches don't talk about hell or eternal damnation anymore. No, we only like to talk about heaven and good things. Many churches don't like to talk about Jesus being the only way. They like to say he is one of many ways. And we definitely don't like to talk about suffering among believers. We're all happy, happy, happy all the time. When you come to Jesus, life is going to be wonderful. You're never going to have to pay the price. However, we all understand that that is not true. We as a church, even in the modern world in which we live, are being called to a higher standard. And that is the standard that is represented in the word of God. See, we lose our edge as believers by compromising and softening our edges. It's that same idea of the sword coming back again. And so this church, as well as we, are admonished again by the Spirit of God to him who has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit is saying. So what is the Spirit saying to this church? Well, what ended up happening in this particular church is most of the people actually listened to these words. Most of the people listened to the rebuke that was given to them, and they decided to follow Christ no matter what. They were unashamed in their relationships at home, at work and in society, they stood up for Jesus. Even you, if you're sitting here tonight or you're watching online, you might be stuck in particular situations. But Jesus is telling you tonight, hold on, hang on, hold on and hang on. I've got you, I'm there with you. And there's a reason for that. One of the quotes that I read from one of our theological books that said the following, but we need to make sure 
that we are influencing the world with the kingdom's values where they conflict with those values of the kingdom. See, the lesson that we're learning from this church that seem to be becoming worldly is that we can choose as believers, are we going to let the world influence us or are we going to influence the world? See, I've seen people say that. I've grown up in church, mind you, and I've heard all kinds of things. I've heard people say, oh, I'm going to that party where everyone's drunk and on drugs, and the Lord is sending me to that party so that I can be a witness. And then that person ends up drunk and, you know, either smoking pot or doing coke. I only met one person who was a believer that she radically turned her life around in one of my former churches she was at a party, and she was away from the Lord, and she was backslidden, but she was still trying to make right choices. And she said, Pastor Eric, I was at that party, and all of a sudden, they brought out cocaine, and everyone started sniffing lines of coke. And I said to them, I don't do drugs, and they started laughing at me and insulting me and intimidating me. And she said, I thought to myself, stupid me. I traded Jesus for these stupid friends thinking they loved me and respected me, but they don't love me and respect me unless I'm snorting coke like they do. And so she walked away from that party, and she has been serving Jesus ever since. See, you got to take a stand. you got to stand for something. And so because of that, we understand also that Revelation was calling the churches in Asia to wake up to the reality that they and the world and the church around them, that they would need to fight into the death, and that the church could overcome only by rising to the battle and risking martyrdom in this uncompromising witness for Jesus. These Christians needed to be willing to go not half of the way, not three-quarters of the way, but they needed to be willing to go all the way. And people, serving Jesus is not a sprint. Anyone can sprint here. I can ask someone that has knee problems here to sprint, and they can do it. But serving Jesus is a marathon. Serving Jesus requires all of your effort and all of your energy and constant awareness that you need to be connected to him. That is the only way that you can get to the finish line. And so because of this faithfulness and this holding on, this early church was promised a few things, and there's so much for me to say, but I'm only going to reference it shortly so that we can break up into our groups. But it says the following. To the one who is victorious, I will give to some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. So three things are promised to these people if they hold on even to the very end. It is said to them that they would receive the hidden manna, just like Israel was given manna in the wilderness when they were on their exodus. These people were promised total and utter provision by God, that God would provide all of their needs and give them more than enough. If they were not able to get it from the temples and from the marketplaces, Jesus was going to take care of them in eternity. They would never have a lack of wisdom and happiness and love and all the things that their hearts desired. He also, like I said, refers to it as the hidden manna, but I want you to understand in this particular society, with all of these cults and religions, a lot of things were quote-unquote hidden. That meant secretive. 
They had secret handshakes, secret practices, and secret rituals. And so the Christians could not participate in these secret things and eat secret foods. And so Jesus says to them, I am going to give to you of the hidden manna, that secret thing that you long for, that the other people get at the pagan temples. You are going to get that. You're going to get that manna just like Israel because you are going to be new. You're going to go through a new exodus, and you are going to come into the new promised land, and you are going to eat of the new manna that I am giving you. And so Jesus equates their struggle to the pilgrims of Israel who wandered from Egypt through the desert into the promised land. And Jesus, he invites these early believers to be just like them. He says, am I the one who is more than enough for you? Am I the one that's going to be the source of all of your needs, not just here and now while you're being persecuted, but when you come over to the other side? I think that that's beautiful that Jesus offers that. The second thing that Jesus offers, and if you're here tonight, you received a white stone when you came in. You can grab that little puppy. The white stone has several meanings. In the culture of that time, one meaning was the white stone was used for acquittal of people in public trials. So if you were innocent, you got a white stone. If you were guilty you got a black stone. So one of the thoughts and ideas that goes behind the white stone is that Jesus was overturning the verdict of the Pergamum Christians who are being persecuted. So even though they were being sentenced to death and getting the black stone on earth, in heaven, when it came to the final judgment, they were being vindicated and being given a white stone of freedom. Another thing that the text shows us historically, is that white stones made of marble were given to people as an invitation to imperial and elite parties. So people didn't just get a little invitation on a piece of paper. They got their name etched on a piece of marble, just like you have here, that was beautiful white, and it was contrasting to the city of Pergamum, which was gray. It was gray buildings. And so in the buildings, the important buildings, there were inscriptions on the buildings of the names of those buildings in white stone, just like this. So what Jesus is saying to these people is, you are important to me. And maybe you're not invited to the emperor's party or to the company party, but I am inviting you to my party. And see, the name that is on the invitation isn't just any ordinary name. It is a special name that only you and I know, a pet name, a family name, a loving name, uh, and even a, a passionate name, so to speak, that is sentimental to only you and I. And this kind of image of Jesus is the complete opposite of the image that he paints himself as, as the one who comes with the sword in his mouth. He is saying, I am the one who is inviting you to my festivities. I am the one who is inviting you to my parties. If you are willing to be isolated from your society on my behalf, then I am inviting you to the party of heaven with me to enjoy all of eternity forevermore. That's quite an invitation. So that's why he says to them, hold on, because the best party is about to come. The third thing that he promises them is a new name. This new name was important. 
It was important, for example, in pagan cultures that when people would go to temples, the priest or the gods or the leaders would give people a new name, forging for them a new identity. However, we also know in Hebrew culture and in the New Testament, new names were given to people showing promise or conversion. And so these new names that are going to be assigned to you and I, there are some thoughts and theories that say it is the name of Jesus that is written upon our head. It is the name of God written upon our head. I'm not really sure if I'm convinced of either one of those. I think it really is a special name. Like the Bible says that only Jesus knows as the host of the party. And that is the name that he says to you. Why do I believe that? Well, I'll close with this little ditty and then one more quote, and then we can break up into our groups. My children are very much aware of the fact that they all have names, and they have names, you know, and they have nicknames based off of their names that other people are allowed to call them. So we shorten all of their names. So we have a son, Philemon, we shorten his name to Phi. People that say, where does your name come from? It comes from the Bible, from the book of Philemon. Boom, there you go. If you've never read it, go for it. And so we shortened it to Phi. So we call him that, and other people can call him that. However, when our three kids were forming in their mother's uterus, when we saw the first ultrasounds of the children, we gave them names based off of the shapes that they look like. So they're funny names. And they're only names that we speak in the house because we would never want to embarrass them, and they love when we call them by these three names. And they say it to us all the time, say my name, say my name. And it's a special name that is only known at home. Even our family members that know us have never even heard these names. And so our kids cherish that moment when we call them by this particular name that only mommy and daddy knew about right after we knew that they were coming into existence and going to be part of our family. And so in that moment, I can see Jesus as this loving, heavenly person who gave his all for us, wanting there to be a sense of personableness and specialness that was associated with each and every one of us. See, before our parents knew us, he's the one that formed us in our mother's womb. And the Bible says, and he called us by name. I can't wait to hear the name that he's been calling me ever since that day. See, these Christians in Pergamum, they were tempted to compromise their loyalty to Christ, to gain favor of the pagan gods. However, Christ generously offers himself and the power of his name so that those who have faith in him may overcome. May the knowledge of how personal Jesus is and how much he loves you help you to overcome every struggle you will face for your belief in him.